The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Rebel Podcast. Elder P, P Nate, AJ Air Jordan. What? How many other nicknames do we have for this guy yet? I was um, actually just thinking about like you've just totally leaned into the Elder P because we don't actually call you that. Like number one, I, it's weird to call yourself number one. Eh? Yeah, I wouldn't call myself number one. That's fair. Okay, like, I, I get that. But like Elder P is like you just totally leaned into that. Nobody said anything. You're hoping nobody would ever mention. It's just Elder P. Now. I'm trying to get away from Pooty. I know you are. I know you are. I'm just calling um, it out. I'm just naming like, the thing. Somebody recently came up to me and was just like, "You have a lot of nicknames." And then they were just like, "What do you want to be called?" And I was like, "Not the ones that you." And call you teared me. up like, a little, and you said, like, "Nobody's that, ever asked me no, this before." <laughs> Like the <laughs> nicknames aren't enough. Like it's <laughs> like that's oh, a whole listening thing. Yeah. It's very hard to be taken seriously in ministry though when your la- when your nickname is Pooty. Yeah, that's, that's, that's like, fair. I do understand. It's like nobody that. wants to counseling yeah. with me. Nobody wants. Like it's like, <laughs> like they want. Would you like, like a meeting with uh, Pastor Nate or uh, with uh, Pooty? The, the Reverend <laughs> Wright or Pooty? Like, would you, would you, like come on now. All right, uh, all right. Elder P, there you go. Tell us who you are, then I have a question for you. People know by this point, this is a part two episode. So if you're listening to this and it's your first episode, I feel bad for you. Go back and listen to the other one. But yeah, we're the Rebels. We're on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. We're still on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, they still like us. They still like us. There's other good stuff on there. So go download the app. Become a club member. That helps all the shows. If you listen to multiple shows on the network, definitely do that. The other thing you can do is you can go to Patreon and you can support us there. All the all the information there is on the show notes, and that goes directly to our show. But uh, um, yeah, that's who we are. What's your question? All right. So about a month ago now, and I've been waiting. We just the last couple of times I forgot to mention it. We went down to the the US of A. And yes, we did. Went to an NFL game. You've <laughs> Made never it across been, the border. We, <laughs> we you went to the the Buffalo Bills which is my team. Yep. I went to an NFL game. I did. You had never been to a game before. I, I want not. I want to hear your you have no idea that I was going to ask you this. I want your impressions of one being live at the NFL yep. to the atmosphere of the stadium. What were yeah, your yeah. thoughts? What's your hot takes on the NFL? All right. So first thing I will say is it was a weird experience going over the border, right? Because for those who are listening right now who don't know, Canada in some ways is more free than the states right now simply because it's actually the states that would deny us entry for being unvaccinated. So we went down with much fear and trepidation, wondering whether or not they would ask for proof of vaccination. We won't disclose exactly how it is that we got over, but they let us unclean filth in. So that was a good thing. So we actually got to go to the game. So then we go to the game. A friend of ours drove his RV down, which was just fun. It was just a fun experience. We were playing games and stuff. Like I've never been on a road trip where I didn't have to be sitting in a seat belted seat. Like, you know what I mean? Like we were just hanging out. It was great. 
But then we get there, so we park, and I'm already thinking, like, where are we going to park as an RV? And he, he looked up some parking place near the stadium. So for those of you who don't know, we went to Detroit. We saw the Lions versus uh, the Bills. We went into a parking lot that had several other RVs in it. We went several hours before the game started. I thought we were getting there way too early. And it's just like the entire parking lot that we went to, you guys are looking at me like I should have known this, but it was like a party. It was like a rave. It was like a high school frat party. Like it's it was, called tailgating. Right? It's crazy. <laughs> like I had no idea. When I hear tailgating, I literally think of a bunch of cars lined up in like bumper to bumper traffic. Like, Hockey fan. I know. Seriously, I have no idea. Okay. So like there's grills out. There's coolers open with drinks all over them. There's ev- like every, I got offered so many drinks and so much food. It was crazy. There was like such a... I guess, community, if, if I can say that. So that was the first thing. And, and as we were working our way to the stadium, I think it was Jan was like, oh, let's, let's head down there. And I'm thinking to myself, like, it's two hours before the game. Like, the, I can see the stadium from here. But it was like, because we went from parking lot to parking lot. And everybody's doing that in all the parking lots. It was just crazy. Yeah, there's bands, there's food. There's, get, yeah, the free, like, there's like bands playing open air. There was like food. There was a couple like tables set up with like buffet food. Yeah. It was good too. I ate everything. I ate all the food. It was the, delicious. The, the least COVID conscious thing you could possibly For do. Sure. Just yeah. like food on a street. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I took a big pile of mac and cheese after I watched the guy sneeze on it in front of me. And I thought, you know what? I'm just embracing the culture here. This is all good. I had actually really good mac and cheese that had jalapenos chopped up into it. Did you have that? Yeah, that was, oh, man, that was like that was amazing. I had the flu the day we were there, and I was struggling through. But that's the <laughs> so only anybody thing I who caught the days. flu at the, at the Lions game, it's, it's it was level. Okay, so then then we go in the outfits, right? People like it's not like hockey where you just wear a jersey. It's face painting, helmets, hats, pants, matching pants. I did not know that there were like official Bills sweatpants. Oh yeah, buddy. Yeah, apparently. So anyway, all of this to say, and I'm sure a bunch of our American listeners are like, this guy's an idiot because everybody knows this stuff. But I was, I was just amazed at just all of that stuff. Then you go in. So I don't know if you've been to the Lions Stadium. It's like a town in a building. It's like an indoor town. It's crazy. It's huge. You're just looking like everything is big. It's like our entire Ingersoll, I think, could pretty much fit (laughs) into the Lions Stadium. Like it was, it was huge. So that was crazy. You know what? I always like football. I like it as a sport. I, I can watch. It. I don't follow it, right? So it's not like I have a team. I, I kind of adopted Buffalo just because everybody else I know likes Buffalo. I don't follow it. I don't I don't know the records. I don't know who's good. I don't know the players' names. But I enjoy watching it. It's fun. But like watching it live is way better than watching it on TV. Like it's just you you can see, like even when you're watching the quarterback fall back into the pocket and you're looking, like you're looking up the field and you're like, where would I throw it? Right? Like you can see all the dimensions of the play much better. So that was really cool. Okay, so we're we're cheering for Buffalo in Detroit. And I would say there's probably, would you agree with this? There's like probably between a quarter and a third of the fans there were Buffalo fans. If not more. It was pretty incredible. But there was this Detroit fan in front of us. And I'm like, when man, when when Detroit lost, I was like, this somebody's got to be on suicide watch for this guy. Like this poor guy, I think his world just came crashing down. And it was an intense game, it came right down to the last second and everything. So here's my impressions. That was all awesome. It was a really cool experience. And I would say it this way. I would say when I go and see a hockey game or or a baseball game, which are the sports that I generally follow, you're watching a game and it's great and I enjoy it. When you go to a football game, it's an event. You're going to an event. It's not about the game. It's about everything else around it. It's about the game too, obviously, but like it's an event. It's not just a game. It's not just a sporting game. It's, It's actually, it's an event. It's an entertainment event. 
So that was all cool. I'm glad I experienced it. We had tons of fun with the group that we went with. On the like flip side of things, this is what I would say. I actually found it really sad seeing how into it so many people got because you can see that we're there and we're experiencing this event. This is the first time I've ever done it and I'm, I'm almost 40. And you can see some of those guys, this is what they do every week. This is their life. This is what they live for. And as I'm watching and I'm seeing the like their grills during the tailgating, you know, parking lot parties or whatever, like that's their church potluck, right? These, these people mm. that they're like having drunken uh, hugs with, that's their church family. What I think church is meant to do for people and Christian community is meant to do for people. It's just sad that we're created in a way that we crave that even if we don't have it. And so we look for it in other ways. And I think that the reason people get so into these kinds of things, there's a reason there's a Bill's mafia and all that kind of stuff is because people are longing for community that church is supposed to give them. And when they don't have it, they look for it in other ways. It's funny. That was the conversation on the, basically on the ride home was kind of like, Love it. One of the best days I've ever had, even though I was feeling terrible. Like, I like going to the games too, but like, it was fun. The group was great. The, the, the whole day was great. But what was funny is that because it's a group of Christians that went down, I think, not in a braggadocious way, but come from a healthy church. Right. And we, we went down. It was like, it was great to experience this, but I wouldn't give up Sunday morning for this. Right. So we went to a Thursday game and like, we were talking about, oh, let's do it again next year. We'll have to look for the schedules that for a game that's on Thursday or Monday because we would never give up Sunday morning. That's right. And it's funny, like you're saying that like, this becomes almost the temple to yeah. like, like, I definitely like felt that we are in the temple. We are a worshiping creature, yeah. Yeah. right? And, and, and they're, and they're, 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 they're singing songs. They're singing they are, like, yeah. and it's like, this you is know, their liturgy. This is their catechism. Yeah. This is their absolutely. Yeah. And you're watching these parents. And, and I, I guess I'm, I, I know I'm casting judgment here, but like it was the American Thanksgiving too, right? So, yeah. so everybody who's there is not with their families celebrating Thanksgiving. They're at this game. There's a couple guys had signs being like, my in-laws think I'm sick and things yeah. like that, yeah. right? Like, I think I have and that's funny, that, but yeah. like... But I, w- I was watching and the, like the amount of men there with their kid, and you don't know, I, I, who knows? They, maybe they, this is just something that's really important to them and their wife is understanding all that kind of stuff. But I'm, I'm just looking like, how many of these are broken homes where mm-hmm. the father, and this is how he's catechizing, this is how he's raising his, he's raising his son in the fear and admonition of the Buffalo Bills, right? Yeah. Like, and, and catechizing him with the, the songs and the, you know. Can I ask one other question? Yeah. That I, like, I realize we've talked a long time about this, but I didn't mean to. Yeah. Being live, did you feel the like woke agenda being pushed in the stadium? No, I would say not as much as when you're watching it on TV, that, which that's, is interesting. That's what I was like after I had reflected a little bit on the game. Heather and I were talking about that, and I basically just said it's interesting, like because when you watch it on TV, there's the whole like they're focusing on in on some of the decals on the field that it's just like love wins or whatever the slogan is. I don't remember. At the game, I didn't feel that at all. Actually, I felt no. like not that there is an area of neutrality, but like there felt like an area of neutrality and like nobody was talking anything political at the at the stadium. Like there was just the Bills versus Detroit. For Actually, us. I can make this a segue. Well done. Okay, so <laughs> what that shows then is it actually shows the power of media and television, right? Because what's happening there is the atmosphere of the game is one thing for the 100,000 people or so that are in attendance. How many people are there, by the way? Like 70-something thousand. 70,000, yeah. It was crazy. Like, I've never seen a crowd that big. But you don't get any of that. So it's actually the few people who are producing the airtime, who are choosing which commercials go on, the announcers who are, as you're saying, highlighting things on, on decals on people's helmets and whatever else. That's who gets to spin the narrative. They get to tell the story 
of what these 70,000 people experienced. And so it shows you the power of media. It shows you the power of how uh, just a few people can swing an entire narrative. So you might have watched that show. In fact, there might have been people watching that show on TV and been like, oh, I can't believe Elder P <laughs> and, Nate, <laughs> and Nate are at that game. Like it was so woke and we, we wouldn't have seen any of that because we weren't the ones telling the story of that experience. So what we want to talk about in this episode, can I transition now? Or do you 100%, more 100%. So what we want to talk about in this episode is how what we talked about last week influences how we wage war in the culture. We want to talk about education. We want to talk about media. We want to talk about telling stories, all that kind of stuff. Now, before we do, not to do another caveat, but like... Remind people Jordan's here because he has a talk in 12 oh, yeah. minutes. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Jordan. hi, everybody. <laughs> uh, so Jordan is here. Um, I just but, wasn't in... I, I just didn't go to the game. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You're about year, to say I wasn't year. invited to the yeah, game. I appreciate I, that you corrected yeah, yeah, yourself yeah, yeah. there yeah. As, as like not to throw us under yeah, the bus. Yeah, no, no, I, I'm no, so no. sorry. Yeah, so we did want to talk a little bit about reaction to last week's episode. You had some questions, Chris. One question that came up that I thought was interesting, and it's a, I think it's an interesting question just to be posed, was the question of, okay, so if the atonement isn't enough, and Paul in Galatians 3 says if anybody preaches a gospel other than the gospel that has been proclaimed to you by the apostles, even if it's a messenger from the Lord, yeah. treat them as accursed. So if we're out on the streets or if you know your church only preaches a gospel of the atonement, are they preaching a gospel that's been altered from what the gospel of the disciples was, was <laughs> being preached? So therefore, are they preaching a false right. gospel? This whole thing is about paradigm shifts, right? So we may have underestimated, like we're talking for 35, 40 minutes about a shift in our thinking that has taken place over months and, and hours of conversation and hours of reading and all that kind of stuff. Here's what I would say. I, no, I do not think that a gospel that focuses in on the atonement, penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, is a, an, an, an anathematized gospel. I don't think it's a, it's, it's a false gospel. What I would say is that it's an incomplete gospel. It's a truncated gospel, to use uh, my friend Joe Boot's favorite uh, uh, word. So if we're putting forward several theses, right? Christ is king. He's king now. That, that king has set up his kingdom. He's inviting you to be a part of that kingdom, right? Pledging allegiance to this king means being taken from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. If these are our theses... If somebody was to come and provide an antithesis, if they were to come and say, I disagree with that thesis, and my gospel presentation actually counteracts what the truth claim that you're making, that would be an anathematized gospel. But if it's merely missing a few components of the theses that build up to this full-orbed gospel presentation, then it's, it's merely incomplete. Hmm. You talked about this in terms of Apollos. Yeah, I, I would say like, so the, the difference would be if you're teaching against things that we would say are, are specifically true. No, that the Bible would say. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> I'm just presupposing. Important caveat. Yeah, yeah. Pretty, important yeah, yeah. caveat yeah. That's, a good, that's a good reminder. That would be false teaching. So uh, somebody who would reject penal substitutionary atonement, for instance, we would say is false teaching. As we have with Broxy KV and Exactly. Yeah. Whereas like somebody who just is blinded to something or unaware of something and they would come, that would be an Apollo situation where it's like it takes, it takes brothers to pull them aside and correct what the, right. the gospel that they're, that they're being preached. We wouldn't say it's false teaching to just preach the atonement. It would be false teaching if they preached the atonement at the expense of the kingdom, saying the kingdom right. doesn't matter or something like that. That's where we'd be like, that's false teaching. Whereas if you're just preaching just the atonement, yeah. Awesome. So like where, where I think you get into these kind of fuzzy or gray areas is there would be some people... 
I would say probably they fall into a more dispensational understanding of Scripture who would understand that Christ did not bring his kingdom, right? That his kingdom has not arrived yet. And I would actually say that's a, that's a fuzzy area. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying all dispensationals aren't saved and they're preaching a, an, an anathemized gospel. What I am saying, though, is that I think that one of the fundamental tenets of the gospel is that a new king is on the throne and the kingdom has arrived. I don't think that there's very good scriptural evidence at all for this idea that Christ will be setting up his kingdom during his second advent. I, I think Old Testament, New Testament, preaching of the apostles, preaching of Christ, all of it points to the kingdom arrived. It arrived in seed form, and it's in the, in, in the process of growing into that from that mustard seed into that plant that dwarfs all the other plants in the garden, or that leaven that is working its way through the loaf, or that stone that's becoming a mountain that's filling the whole earth, that's, that sort of thing. So I do actually think that you get into some fuzzy areas if you truly don't believe that Christ brought the kingdom, right? If you still think we're waiting for the kingdom, or waiting for the king to arrive— even in the the alliance, A.B. Simpson was famous for saying that Christ is our coming king. And I actually think that that's actually flirting with the line here because he's he's the king who has come. He came. Now he's in the process of ruling from heaven where all enemies are being placed underneath his feet in victory. And that's kind of what we want to talk about today is this understanding of the kingdom scope of the gospel touches every area of life. And since I get criticized for being the one who talks all the time, I'm just going to throw it out there to you guys. How, what do you mean it touches everything, Chris? Well, I think if we take scripture literally, and it's and First Corinthians 15 says all enemies will be defeated until the last enemy will be, be defeated is death. That means every sphere that we would say is an enemy to the gospel right now. You mentioned media earlier. You mentioned, you know, I think some in our conversations earlier, we talked about art. We talked about, um, you know, literature, education, education, medicine, everything that isn't proclaiming the gospel that Christ is king is an enemy simply because worldviews are our enemy. Principalities, ideologies that aren't the Christian worldview are enemies. That's just facts of this world. So therefore, everything that isn't proclaiming that message is an enemy that needs to be defeated. So we are saying the paradigm shift with the gospel of the atonement isn't enough, is that the kingdom is encompassing of all of those things, which means that Christians, you, me, whoever's listening to this, needs to, one, bring our faith into all of those spheres, but it also means that Christendom needs to conquer all of those of those spheres. So to play this out, education's the easy one. We I think we all recognize the evils of the education system. Right. We're all like, it might not be the easiest to correct, but we recognize it the, the simplest. But how does art get put under the foot of Christ, right? And wh what we're saying is that art needs to be put under the foot of Christ. Entertainment needs to be put under the foot of Christ because right now those things are enemies to the gospel. So I got a question, but before that, let's lay a little bit more groundwork. I, I'll, go sure. to, I'll go to Jordan because he, he mentioned this earlier when we were um, talking about this a bit. Part of the paradigm shift now, so we're talking, we're going to be talking about various spheres and how they come under the feet of Jesus in victory, but understanding the authority of King Jesus and the authority that he has delegated becomes paramount to this. So that's part of the whole paradigm shift. So what were you saying in terms of understanding the delegation of the authority of King Jesus? Well, one thing that I've been studying a lot lately is like the covenants and yep. how God is a covenantal God. And he, you know, all the way back to Adam, you know, we see in Hosea, he transgressed the covenant. So, and we're all fallen in sin because our covenant head fell into sin. When you see God being covenantal, 
part of that is delegation of responsibilities and authority because right. this thing that we've, we've been saying for the last few episodes is that picture of a conquering king coming to a fallen kingdom, bringing his law and telling this, the citizens of that fallen kingdom, you need to either obey or you're going to disobey, consequences or blessings. The thing that people forget is like God is omnipresent, he's everywhere, but in this picture of a king, he can't be in every home, he can't be in every city, he can't be in every nation. So in this picture that we have, it's the king has to delegate his authority to other people in different spheres. So you have household authority, you have individual authority even before that, but then you have church authority, you have then civil magistrate authority. And in each of those things, the king, it's not a question of whether he is the king, he is the king. That's right. You don't get to choose whether you like the king or not. If you reject the king, well, you die. Doesn't, right. doesn't matter what you, whether you want. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you like it, if you agree with it, it is what it is. Right. So then you see that in all of these different spheres, and it's it's just interesting how we're in the mess we're in culturally yep. in Canada and really everywhere because we don't have a proper understanding of his kingship and then that delegated authority. And we're seeing how it's being destroyed across the board culturally. In the civil magistrate, we see that leaders just do whatever they want and they think yeah. they can get away with it. And they forget that their office exists under the authority of King Jesus. They are a deacon, delegated specific authority, and certain authority that's not given to them. Like, really? And then that's been the failure of church leaders that's right. currently, is because they have delegated authority and spheres of that authority, where they have themselves, like the government, they have stepped outside of that, of what King Jesus has told them they can do, and they have, you know, authority to enforce God's law. Right. Um, they have, the state has you know power of, of the sword, but then the church they have their authority for things like church discipline, shepherding the flock. But then we even saw the failure of that in church leaders now imposing unbiblical sanctions on the individual and on the family yeah. over the last few years, where it's like, oh, you can only come if you do this thing that we're going to force you to do, right? Which is outside which is of outside our... of your authority to do that, because now you're saying that something that in my home I have an authority in my home. You're now taking that authority upon yourself, That's right. and you're just acting the exact, in the exact same way as the state. That's in, right. In their... And it always comes back to this, it's not whether, but which, right? And so you have churches, even many churches, who never practice church discipline in a biblical way, who functionally disciplined their people through excommunication by barring them from the Lord's table, from barring them from corporate gatherings, if they would not whether it's wear a mask, come vaccinated, whatever the case was. So they are adding, like the Pharisees, right, to the law of God, man-made laws that would be like a fence around. So they used love your neighbor, which is God's law, but the fence around that was, and love your neighbor in this specific unbiblical way of wearing a mask to worship. So it all stems from this not understanding that you only have authority in your home, in your church, in your office, civil office, that has been explicitly delegated to you by King Jesus. I think you're absolutely right. Not understanding sphere authority and delegated authority of the king has led us to some of this mess. And here's what I would say. I would say that every person, every office, every institution, everything that exists can only exist if it acknowledges the reality of King Jesus. So when we think about the things that need to be placed underneath the feet of Jesus in victory, what we're saying is every single sphere, every single thing, every single institution, every noun on the planet <laughs> must 
explicitly acknowledge Christ as the king. So when you think about something like education, okay, so education was not delegated to the state, which means the first thing that we ought to do is abolish state schools. And that's Nate at Crossroads. <laughs> Well, that's, I shouldn't say that's the first thing that needs to be done, like, like, because there's obviously strategy in this. I th- actually think the first place is tax reform, first thing first. Those who aren't using the public education system should not have to pay into the public education system, watch it collapse, and then rebuild something. But education belongs to the family, and so I think families ought to be on the hook for educating their own kids, whether that's homeschool or whether or not it's, it's families in a particular neighborhood hiring a teacher and teaching them in one of their basements or whatever, right? This is that neighborhood school idea. Churches were very involved in this, but it was family-run, family-driven. So you look at that and you're like, but no matter what, Christ as king needs to be explicitly stated. Now, we're not saying that it needs to be a classical Christian education, though we might think that that's best. We're not saying that it has to be a, a particular thing, but we are saying that whatever it is, it must acknowledge Christ as the king. It has to. That's the only way that it gets to continue to exist. You look at something else entirely, like pornography. Well, pornography isn't going to be reformed because there's no version of it that exists under King Jesus because it violates his law. So that merely needs to be eradicated. So you have one thing that's currently existing in a way that doesn't acknowledge the King Jesus, and it's under wrong jurisdiction. So its jurisdiction needs to change and it needs to explicitly come under uh, the authority of King Jesus. And then you have something else that is an illegitimate entity because it's impossible for it to exist in a world where Christ is acknowledged as king. So that must be eradicated. So when we look at these various things that exist, you look at something like medicine. Okay, so medicine, again, I would say that this is something that's under an illegitimate authority. I don't think the state was ever delegated any authority over health care. I think that this is something that's delegated to families, delegated to even the church, right, in terms of elders laying their hands on the sick and praying for them and all that kind of stuff. But I think actually medicine ought to be privatized. I think I think medicine is something that wasn't given explicitly to any one particular sphere. There are overlapping authorities, and so it happens in that sort of way. So what we're saying is the hard work of applying this view of the gospel is that every entity actually needs to be reformed, which means that the reformation of the world as it currently exists needs to be an all-hands-on-deck thing, because there's not one church or two churches or ten churches that get this right that can bear the workload of reforming everything, which is actually why I think this paradigm shift has caused all of us to think a little bit more locally than we once did. I'm far less interested in national politics as I am in local politics now, because I recognize my work of reformation can only go so far. It's ground up, not top down. Right? Yeah. So like, so I just want to make sure people hear what we're saying. We're like, we're not saying that we, if we just elect a politician who's Christian, Definitely everything's not. going to get changed. It's like, no, no. But if we have enough Christians who then elect a politician based on our collective values, that's how reformation happens because the groundswell works from the ground up. You know what I mean? Yeah. These sorts of things happen locally with individual households recognizing, as Jordan was talking about, where has King Jesus delegated the authority over education of the young to our household? Okay, so now... That means maybe mom has to quit her job because you can't do this and both of you work full time. And so she needs to 
quit her job. And even if she doesn't feel equipped to educate, find other Christians of the same conviction and figure out how you can do anything from pod learning to church co-ops to any of this kind of stuff. So it, it happens in a very organic way. It might seem daunting, but it's what do you have the authority to change right now? I would even say like something as daunting as healthcare. Right now it's illegal in Canada for uh, medicine to become privatized. So what does this look like? I think it actually looks like individuals getting together and starting to provide healthcare in a way that's off the grid and in the shadows and all that kind of stuff. We talked about this off air. We were talking about the, uh, some people can dream big because they, they don't get daunted by like the all the steps that need to take to get from point the beginning to the end. Yep. But some people need to see all those little steps. So how does this work? It, it works with a household being ordered correctly, yes, um, which amen. starts with the man in the household being a self-ruled man. But then the church is made up of a household of households. So we start to do this internally in our churches. So if we want to see a Christianized economy, for instance, well, your church then should model a an economy that's internal inside the church. So like you talked about medicine, we could talk about food. Okay. Well, you know, prices are outrageous. Well, well, what happens if everybody in our well, church was GMO and everything <laughs> and there's fluoride in our water? Like, let's be honest, but, right? What, we what, live in a pretty messed up system. Exactly. But what happens if in, in the churches and, and our church is actually kind of getting to this point was like, we're, we have people who grow corn. We have people who grow, who do dairy, dairy farming and internally, we just buy it off each other, which one keeps the money yeah. in our family, but then it's two, it's like it's goods and services being exchanged within the household of God. So which means, you know, when I go to my butcher, I'm going to my Christian butcher because he's a Christian guy in my church. This groundswell explains to the point like, okay, well, I'm not a butcher myself, but you know, maybe I could teach math from a Christian perspective. I don't know why I picked math for me. That's a terrible <laughs> fit, but it snowballs into the point where it's like, I don't mean to sound super cultish because we get we, accused we, of that enough. Yeah. But like it becomes a where we, we actually just don't need you to the government. We don't need yeah. all this stuff. So like, and you meant so that, uh, so that when the unvaccinated get forced out of society, it doesn't like, affect That's us. fine. We got a better one. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I don't need to eat. I don't yeah. need to eat your store-bought frozen beef because I'm getting brim. Yeah. Spanking new beef. Like, yeah. I don't know why meat is the, the thing that I'm focusing on, but like, it's the idea. But like, it's lunchtime. <laughs> it, 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 that, uh, yeah, it encompasses all of those fears. So, like, for instance, music, like, yeah. you know, church, we write our own. You know what I mean? Like, right. we have, we're on our way to doing that. We're not doing that there yet. But like, it's the idea we don't actually just need anything from outside of the church, like, right? Um, because we're starting to create all of our own stuff, media, all that stuff. And it's just the groundswell becomes becomes well, a thing. Well, Chris, you, I think you just said you read the Christian nationalism book, yeah, right? The, great book. I finished right. it yesterday. Yeah, Stephen, yesterday. Stephen Wolf? No, I, I, I read the short oh, version. The, 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 the guys from the Gab, yeah. Yeah, Iskar and Gab and uh, Torba. Yeah, and I th one of the things they mentioned in that book, which I thought was really interesting, is as we're wanting to, you know, we're post-millennial, we want to see nations Christianized. Yep. I, I, I fail to see how any Christian wouldn't want that. <laughs> we don't want them um, Islamicized. Right, so. so it's like we want that. Um, but then how... In the efforts of doing that, because all of these systems of this kingdom right now are so broken, our financial system, our legal system, our healthcare system, all of it are completely corrupt. So we have to, if we're wanting to build this new Christendom, we kind of have to start from scratch. Yeah. So like we have to start with communities providing food, That's providing right. good quality meats and vegetables and all these different things. So it's like when that other system eventually collapses in on itself like a dying star, which it will yeah. because it's completely corrupt there's then going to be waiting for it, this like healthy, beautiful, godly, right. Christian system just ready to take over. And, and historically, you know what's amazing? Historically speaking, 
Because after Stephen's stoning, persecution broke out in Jerusalem, which forced many of the Christians out of Jerusalem, and many of them actually settled in Antioch. Antioch then became sort of the first century hub of the area where eventually missionary journeys of Paul's were sent from Antioch and all that. And during famines, resources from Antioch were sent to the Jerusalem church. Well, after 70 AD, historically speaking, when it's decimated, right, completely destroyed by the Romans, it was actually Antioch missionaries who went down into Jerusalem to help rebuild the city and brought food and brought resources and rebuilt houses. It was the Christians who could come in and actually begin to rebuild things. And it was because they had this thriving economy that had happened because Christians from all over got sent there during persecution. We're like, what a beautiful picture of like, right now, I think many Christians, in, in, in a lot of ways, I was talking about some of this stuff beforehand, but it was never, it was always theoretical. Like until COVID happened, I think that opened a lot of our eyes to just how bad the system is and how vulnerable we are to a systemic collapse. And I know we're going off like our original topic here, but I think it does remind us that part of the Christian duty is not just this, okay, I'll connect it, because it's not just about this atonement gospel and get as many people into the kingdom, right? As many people as we can to say the sinner's prayer because the Titanic is going down. It's like we're inviting people into the kingdom of light, and we're inviting them to put their hands in the soil and get dirty because we're actually not on a sinking ship called the Titanic. We're actually on something that's being rebuilt and repurposed and that will actually last forever. We're inviting them into, not into a prosperity gospel, like, but it's like the idea of like, we're inviting them into a covenant family that takes Amen. care of it, that takes go. care of itself. Yep. So like the, the analogy in Corinthians is of the body of the church being a body, every, like everybody's a different piece of the body, but like it talks about the, the idea we take care of our body first so that we can be a blessing to those outside of the body. But the implication is that we take care of our, our own first. Yeah. And so... Oftentimes the pushback to this will be like, oh, you guys want to be in like an axe church that everybody sells everything and, and gives it away. Like, no, 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 no. We want to apply the equity of that. And what's the equity of that is that the church took care of their own. That's right. And so it's like, yeah, I'm not saying Jordan has to go and sell his home and give all the money to the, to the elders of our church. Far from that. What I'm saying is that he needs to be the like we as a church family need to be the kind of family that provides for the needs of our people to the point where not to, not to make a communist society in our church, but like there isn't people struggling to be fed in our church family. No, but you, I'll, I'll keep embarrassing Jordan for a minute here. So that's what, fine. What, I like doing that. What we actually what we actually mean is how can the people around Jordan encourage him to build something that's thriving in terms of his business, in terms of of what he does for a living? That's essentially Robin Hooding. Take money from the pagan system, let them pay you for your, you know, your goods and services, and then turn that inside and hire people from the church and you know all that kind of stuff. So I was getting at this a little bit on Sunday, and it was interesting how many people this piqued their curiosity because I didn't go into depth on it. But this idea of not working for the man, right? Like not working for some corporate entity and not owning anything, right? So it used to be, you used the term internal economy. The word economy actually comes from two Greek words, okos or okoi, meaning home, and nomos, meaning law. So economy is literally the household law or the home law. 
And so the idea here and is because the ancient household was a place where the values and the law of that home actually did build an economy because you had you built something. Every household was a place where trades were going on, right? The blacksmith of the of the community was in this home and the the leather smith, leatherer, leather, leather worker. Leather worker uh, of the community was in this home and the you know all that kind of stuff. And that was something that was being built by a family. The entire family had equity in that because then it would be passed on and parceled off to the children. Whereas now we live in a a society where most fathers work for a corporate entity, right? So they collect a paycheck, but they own nothing. And then they send their kids off to school somewhere to get a degree. They accumulate all this debt, and then they have to go and find a job at another corporate entity. And all you're doing is you're, you're calling every generation to start from scratch go spend a bunch of money to get a degree and start your own thing as opposed to what used to be is is this development of this household economy this household law this household value this this thing that you're building that spans from one generation to the next and so your children don't start from scratch they actually inherit a home and property and a business that they can then build upon is it any wonder that christendom is is where it is because every generation is starting from scratch whereas if if families start thinking through how can my family be independent and how can we build something where my children aren't starting from scratch and that doesn't mean that like if you're if chris is the leather worker and and his kid shows no interest in leather working and this is actually where some resentment comes from is like i could never meet the expectations of my father he wanted me to be this but this is how i was well hey that's what the church is for and so hey jordan you're into marketing and artsy stuff I got an artsy kid who doesn't like leatherworking. Can you apprentice him? Can he get a job in your household economy? And Jordan's daughter, who has no interest in anything artsy and is colorblind, <laughs> gets sent over to the Poots house where she learns leatherwork. You know what I mean? Like, this is the sort of thing where if more families think multi-generationally and everybody in the church family is doing that and somebody is like, oh, hey, it's great that we have this garden with all this produce, but where are we getting the chicken from? Why don't I be the church's chicken manufacturer and nobody in the church buys their chicken from any grocery store. We all get it from so-and-so. Like if we think that way, I think it might not get fixed for us, but we might spend our lives fixing it. So our kids grow up in a much better household, right? Household of households. Exactly. It might take generations for this to be a thing, but we're in the empire business. We're we're, we're not playing chess or sorry, we're not playing checkers. We're playing chess. Like, so if it takes 10 moves to get checkmate, fine. We got, we have time. You know what I mean? Like, so we often talk about like, let's raise kids to be dragon slayers. Well, let's raise kids to be dragon slayers who raise kids to be like, and play the game all all the way out. And there's nothing wrong with building an eternal like empire because we're an an empire of empire. Because it's not our empire. No, exactly. It's it's King Jesus empire. And so what the other thing I would say is that when you think about this, because it's a little bit easy, it's easier to imagine as a leather worker. And I'm like, I, I like I think how the, I use I think that. I think the actual word actually, is tanner. I think like... Yeah, that is, that, that's the like, thing, I think, right? Don't like, they, yeah. I, 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 yeah. Uh, I should have used something more modern. <laughs> like, but But here's my point is like, it's easy to imagine this when it's plumbing, when it's being an electrician, like those kinds of trade stuff. It's harder to imagine that when it's like engineering, right? Because they need a degree of some kind. 
But that's where the long game comes in, and you start thinking through what can the church do to equip these sorts of engineers. And let's be honest, like generally most people who do what you do, Jordan, have a degree as well. Mm-hmm. And I heard you say to a young person in the church the other day, yeah, don't go to school for this. I can teach you better than the schools can. Yep. And that wasn't arrogant no. of you. That was just rea- reality. Yep. Is like you would rather hire somebody with no schooling than somebody who has to unlearn all the crap that they learned in school. And quite frankly, I'm in the same boat raising up pastors right now. I would rather somebody who hasn't gone to seminary. So let me just play that out. That doesn't mean that we don't need original languages, but that means that we can actually go out and get somebody who's like-minded, who can come in and teach the original languages to the pastors. They don't need the whole seminary degree, but they can come in and teach us Greek and, and Hebrew so that we can train up pastors who are equipped. Same thing with engineers. So we have land developers in our congregation who have construction businesses who might not be looking for an engineer with a degree. And if that gets built out and they're thinking multi-generationally about their business, well, where they're getting their next crop of engineers from, don't look outside your church, right? I just think if everybody gets on board with something like this and we have multiple churches doing these sorts of things, then Christendom gets built a whole lot faster. And it's actually plausible to think how can some of these things like higher education, medicine, get put underneath the feet of Jesus and victory. It happens locally first. Application question for all of our pastor friends who are probably struggling through a lot of these things, the people who listen to us anyway. What's the first step? We talked about dream big. We know the we know the end. Yeah, yeah. What's step one? What do you do tomorrow when you walk into your church to start implementing this? Start a school. You can't start a school tomorrow, but begin to start a school. And how you start a school, we don't have a school. So you're, you're, you're taking this advice from a guy who hasn't got there yet. But how you start a school is first start a homeschooling co-op. If you don't have a homeschooling co-op. So step one, if you're not already doing it, preach from the pulpit explicitly that home education is how the Bible prescribes education is to be done. Don't say any of that stupid stuff that says, oh, public school is just as valid an option and this is a conscience issue. It is not a conscience issue. The Bible gives authority to the parents to educate their children and there is no realm of education that is neutral enough that you can trust a pagan to do it. So that's number one, preach it from the pulpit. Number two, encourage families. And and if that means you have to actually help families transition from two incomes to one income, disciple them through that. Help them with budgeting, help them downsize their home, all of that stuff. Make it feasible for families to educate their own kids. Get a co-op going so that all of those families are sharing resources and coming together. And then go from one day to two days to three days and begin to do that. Look for a space, whether you have to rent it or you can do it in your own church, where you can start bringing in who's the best English teacher we have. Let's start allowing that English teacher to teach the kids as they get into that grade five and six and seven when they need more specialized teaching and just do it organically that way. You don't need to start a classical Christian school where parents are paying thousands of dollars. Make it a parent-directed homeschool Christian school hybrid and make it happen. Education is number one because you, even if all of our churches fail in what we're talking about, equip the next generation to succeed where we've failed. So that's number one. And then I would just say number two is it's really, really easy. And we've actually implemented this. We're further along in this than we are in our education side of things is develop an internal food economy, right? Get people in the church homesteading, set them up with homesteading seminars and all that kind of stuff. So they're growing their own food and have them encourage them. Don't make it a law, right? You don't have the authority to do that, but encourage them. The church will come. We have a rototiller in the church. 
we'll till for you, we'll help you plant your seeds, people will come, and then tithe back to the church a portion of what it is that you're, you're doing so that you have something where people in the church are now not going to go hungry and you're creating your internal economy that way. Number three, make a shepherding list. Have a little Bible, a little book where all the people in your church and the various skills and trades that they are doing is on display so that when you hire a plumber, when you hire an electrician, when you hire a car mechanic, you're not taking your money outside of your church economy. And then that also means for those of you who are plumbers, who are electricians, who are car mechanics, figure out a way that you are not so busy with your corporate job that you cannot do internal jobs for the church. And then those inside the church who are utilizing professionals in, inside the church, don't be skimpy. Don't assume that you're going to get a deal by using somebody in the church. In fact, you should be willing to pay them more because that money is staying in-house. That, that do you, was want, me all, to, do you no, want me to keep going? No, it's funny. <laughs> me and Jordan keep looking at each other because you're just like, you're on fire right now. But like, it was funny. It was uh, funny because that was what I was going to say the first step is, is the like, build the shepherding list, keep the money in the in-house, start using each other. But like you went education, which, yeah. and then you like destroyed the public school system. So that's a hot take. Yeah. I loved it. Anything else we want to say? I feel like we just yeah, the ticked last off thing, everybody. I think know? that it's funny because we get accused of this a lot talking about post mill, but this whole vision is a heck of a lot easier when you have a post mill framework. It does. It because is. like it, if you yeah. are thinking that the ship is going down, we're yeah. pulse and brash on a sinking ship, you're not going to be thinking about starting a school for your grandkids. That's right. Kids. Can, yeah. Can I just say yeah. something about that? I, I actually think for anybody who's still listening to this episode, all theology should be able to be worked out practically. And so the question I would have to the dispensational, to the, like a lot of our loving brothers who are, are godly men who have, I would say, maybe a disconnect in their eschatology to is like, how does your eschatology practically play out? Because there we just laid out in this episode how our eschatology plays itself out in our belief. And what is that? Is that we want to take care of our own. We want to build. I'm not saying that those people don't, but like one of the foundational building blocks of why we think this way is because we think that the kingdom is going to win and we yeah. need to make this kingdom world. And so the question I would say to the differing believing eschatology people is like, how does your eschatology theologically play out practically in your, in your world? Because the, the answer is if you think the world's getting worse and worse, the answer to that is to hunker down, pull, not it's to, to build pull. out. Exactly. Cause, cause it's to pull what, out. Cause we are like, we are talking about a sort of strategic retreat in the moment. We are talking about that. That's why it's also absolutely, internal, absolutely. right? But it's strategic retreat for a time while you build up so that you can push out. So like, for example, I'll use medicine as, a, as an example. And this is all theoretical because it's illegal in Canada. So it's all theoretical. But let's just say, <laughs> but let's just say that there were several nurses and doctors who lost jobs because of vaccine mandates. That never happened. Who are wondering what to do. And so some of them are thinking, I want to go to the States because I can practice with my degree there. And I think that some of our friends with more pessimistic eschatology, that's the logical choice. Just go to where you can provide for your family right now. What I would say is actually band together with other medical professionals who are in the same boat as you, work over the next decade to serve within the church family, to build up a clientele of people that you're going and you're visiting so that maybe one day down the road, a budget 
a line item in church budget might be going to pay for this this group of people who are providing the elderly some care so they can stay in their homes instead of going to a a government-run institution, a place where instead of going in Canada and spending 22 hours in the emergency room so that you can get some Tylenol for your children who has a fever, you can actually call up this theoretical group within your church who have medicine on hand because we've stored it and keep it and have it and they can come and they can treat your child at home so you don't have to go right and so you're looking at all that and you're saying oh but how am i getting a salary well slowly that family you don't think that there's a family who would rather pay you 150 dollars to come and give them the medicine that they need instead of spending 22 hours because let's be honest time is money right so if i spend 22 hours in the hospital with my daughter who has a fever because there's no kids tylenol on the shelves I would 100% rather pay somebody 150 bucks from the church family who can come, bring me the medicine I need, leave it there, treat my child, get their fever broken, and then go home. And so you just look at those and you're like, oh, I don't know if you can make a living that way. Maybe not right now, but you're building something that might become an underground medical establishment in 50 years. The problem is, is that there's not another eschatological framework that makes that worth it. Because we have a vision of, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, 150 years. So we're looking at head and being willing to plant a tree that we'll never sit in the shade of, which is something Chris says all the time, because, of our, eschatological, <laughs> because of our eschatological view. So I just say, whatever it is, and honestly, so then get into those of you who are gifted writers, those of you who are gifted painters, those of you who are gifted musicians, Think about how your skill and what God has given to you can play itself out locally first and build something. And it might not benefit you in your lifetime, but it's something you can pass on to either one of your kids or another child in the congregation who's gifted in the same way. And I just think if we all start thinking that way, imagine what a church could look like in 100 years. It's amazing. Awesome. Dream big. That's all I got. (laughs) See you guys.